Thank you very much. Good morning. Yeah. So this is a talk that I've never given before, and I was just brainstorming over breakfast and threw together some slides. And um, I have, I'm giving the opening keynote at the AES show in New York next week. And so uh, I hope you guys don't mind me being, using you as guinea pigs for that, uh, if that's okay. If you don't mind being lab rats a little bit. And I'm gonna brainstorm some ideas and you're welcome to discuss them with me later at the conference, whatever. Uh, very pleased to be at this conference. Um, I'm not gonna talk about interactive music and spatialized sound and so on, because those are covered adequately elsewhere in, um, in the conference. I am gonna talk a little bit about the challenge of educating in universities uh, in this area. Uh, but first I, I had a thought and um, I went up to my room and I, I made, I borrowed this curtain rod up there. And, um, I'm sure the Biltmore won't mind, I'll put it back afterwards. But I, I just wanted to sort of illustrate something here, which is that, you know, I'm able to balance this curtain rod on my fingertips not because I trained at Cirque du Soleil in my, in my childhood, uh, but because I'm a human being. Um, I'm not thinking left a bit, right a bit, so on. It would probably fall if I did that, but I've got this nanosecond level reflex loop going on between my eyes and my brain and the pads on the tips of my finger. And when you think about it, that's actually what's happening when you listen to an orchestra playing because the players in the orchestra with their fingertips on the fretboards and their embouchure are making minute nanosecond level adjustments to what they're hearing. And there is a constant loop going on between their fingertips or their lips and their brain and their skeletons, which are taking in the whole resonance of the stage. And so these young musicians at Peabody are in the process of becoming attuned, not only to the sound of their own instruments, but also to the open strings on their instruments, to those of their neighbors, to the piano lid that's open on the stage, to the timpani that are ringing, to the entire acoustic of the stage and what's under the stage and what's coming back to them from the hall. This infinite loop is, is becoming finely tuned as they plug into these resonances. And that's how an orchestra stays in tune. That's how they play together. Now, conversely, when we have multiple elements in the audio industry, we tend, and we have done this for decades now, to think of a list of assets. In fact, when I started doing game sound 25 years ago, I would get a list of required assets from the game company, and I would make some WAV files and send them back and then hope that maybe in a few months time, I would hear them actually implemented correctly into the game, fingers crossed. Well, things have improved a lot since then, but the way that we still tend to think is of these sound elements as independent chunks. And right next door, I was attending the WISE demo. They've got a fabulous solution for importing a bunch of chunks into a game project and firing them off based on what's going on in the game. It's great, it's a very good solution today for game audio. But the issue, and I'm gonna talk about this at AES next week, is that within the music industry, we tend and we've always tended to think of these chunks of sound as isolated units 
that we can manipulate in a DAW, that we can apply certain parameters to, to improve them and make them better. But this is not what happens in nature. This is not what happens when an orchestra are playing together or a band, a jazz band are playing together or when a vocal ensemble are playing together. And this is not what happens in nature. Because in nature, in flocks, in schools of fish and so on, you see these synaptic level messages being fired around to create a collective intelligence. And that's essentially what's happening when great music is going on. Um, now, in other areas, other than the music industry, there is work going on to study this kind of collective intelligence. For example, if you watch Lord of the Rings and you see armies with hordes of soldiers, these have been individually programmed with artificial intelligence and then instincts have been programmed. So you're not just creating clones of, of these different creatures, you're creating essentially a collective intelligence. And in other fields, a lot of research work has been done to study the way this collective intelligence works. For example, this is a guy in the UK who is studying schools of fish. And the same thing has been done with flocks of birds. And algorithms can be created that essentially replicate the behavior of flocks of birds or schools of fish and so on. In the professional audio industry, we're still, still dealing primarily with lists of assets. And so the core building block of a pro audio application is a WAV file, an AAF file. I think this needs to change. I think that you're gonna tell me that in proprietary authoring environments such as WISE or maybe FMOD, uh, Unity itself, that I could find solutions that would allow me to essentially have this kind of interaction between the elements, the sound elements within a piece by careful programming and by taking the right messages from the game engine to interpret how I want as a composer in the, in the structure. But the problem for me is that we're very limited to set ways of doing things. The wise approach is a great solution, I'm all in favor of it, and it's working very well right now. But the fact is that we're still dealing essentially with wave and AF files that have no knowledge of each other. They have no context. They do as they're told, but they don't listen. So I feel that in a way we need a more proprietary, a non-proprietary open standard format that is more intelligent than a WAV file in order that we can begin to develop new ways of creating interactive music and spatialized sound. Something like a Rex file is sort of a good start. As you may know, this is a proprietary format which has been licensed by Apple and um, uh, you know, Acid and, and various other um, programs over the years, which allows you to break up um, the WAV file into chunks. And that allows you to do things like control their tempo and their, their um, pitch independently. This is a great start. There needs to be more metadata involved though. For example, a file needs to declare its tempo and its pitch to start with so that we know what to do with it and aspects of its volume and its transients and the, all sorts of metadata relating to mood and um, genre and things like that. And I think only when the industry pays some attention to that and gets together and creates a, a, an open source development platform around a new type of audio file format will progress, real progress be made. And only then will we start to replicate 
what's happening when you hear a great orchestra playing together so that the conductor becomes not a programmer or a bricklayer. more of a conductor of all of the individual elements of the audio. <laughs> so, how do you teach this to young people? Well, <laughs> how do you get young people to think about this stuff in a creative way? I mean, a lot of the typical 19-year-olds, this was me when I was 19, these days, if you're 19, there's no such thing as a problem because you're only a few key presses away from a solution, right? You Google it, you download the user manual, you maybe post a message on a forum and by morning you've got all sorts of answers. You find a YouTube tutorial of somebody else who's figured out the answer to the problem for you. So many 19-year-olds that I've been encountering in my course, their instinct when they encounter a roadblock is to reach for that device and solve their problem in a few key presses. But the thing is that through my career, going from synthesis to music videos to web development to proprietary soft synth sound engines to mobile and so on. Um, I've encountered roadblocks all the way and it was really through creative navigation around those roadblocks that I found my originality. So that is the best thing that I have to try and infect my students with. So how do you go about teaching this? Well, let me tell you how my approach has worked to it. I have to say, I left school at 16. Um, I graduated uh, from high school and there were no university courses to teach me electronic synthesis or, or uh, experimental film in the UK. And so I went to work in a fruit and vegetable shop to help finance my, my electronic music habit. And I sometimes kick myself because British universities were free in those days. Um, so uh, a few years ago, I was approached by Johns Hopkins University to go to Baltimore in Maryland and help them open the Film and Media Center in Station North, which they have done in conjunction with the local art school, MICA. And I launched the center four years ago and began teaching a course there in linear film and music composition. And during that time, I spent quite a lot of time at the Peabody Conservatory. And the Peabody Conservatory is the oldest conservatory in the USA and it's, it's part of Johns Hopkins. And I was very struck by the, um, the types of students that went there. And so I've come to learn, um, having had no exposure to the university system, let alone the American university system, um, that you know, a, a school like Johns Hopkins is, is very exclusive. And it occurred to me that some of the children, the, the students that I most would be interested in teaching would not be getting straight A's all the way through high school. You know, the next J.J. Abrams or Hans Zimmer or whatever was probably not a straight A student. Um, you know, they're off doing their own thing, and so they might not have qualified for Hopkins. And it really got me to thinking that there is a bit of a crisis in higher education. How many of you guys have got college-age kids or kids thinking about college? Yeah, a few, right? And, and you know, as a, as a parent, it's a bit of a nightmare, and you think, well, you're going to have to make this huge investment, which they're going to take years to pay off. And you worry, frankly, about whether the education they're going to get there is going to be as useful in the school of life as going out into the workforce, as I did. But you know, I don't want to speak against uh, higher education. I just think that you know, when you look at some of the fees uh, for American universities and the investment that you're asking of these kids, it's really quite outrageous. I mean, they have not kept step 
with the general cost of living, they've absolutely gone through the roof. And you know, attending a public college may cost more than the price of a small house. To go to a private university, unless you have super rich parents, you're gonna to have to take student debt of tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars. And there's little hope of you ever paying it off for an increase in your career prospects, especially as a musician. And that to me is a crisis. So I don't wanna bite the hand that feeds, but I really think that you know, there are advances in technology in the last decade that have the potential to vastly improve our standards of education and reduce the hard costs. And still college fees continue to mushroom. Further education is just becoming for the privileged in our society. And the lack of a college degree just perpetuates the cycle of poverty. All right, well, that's enough of my political diatribe. But <laughs> I do feel that you know, there's a real risk that colleges and universities are gonna go the way of several other disintermediated industries where technology just caught them unawares. And if you look at the taxi industry or the music industry, um, you'll realize that it wasn't often what we thought it was. And as it turned out, the business of music was not really about that. It was more about a singer setting up in the town square <laughs> and collecting enough loose change <laughs> so that he could afford to go shopping. So, I mean, you've seen this disintermediation happen in many other industries. And it's just not out of the question that this is gonna to begin to happen in higher education as well. So this was the sermon that I preached to the, the administration of the Peabody Institute when I first went there. And it's a wonderful uh, institution. They turn out scores of fabulously highly trained classical musicians every year, uh, far more than there are jobs in professional orchestras. So many of these kids are gonna end up either teaching piano to their neighbor's children, or maybe doing some other career altogether and they'll have a Johns Hopkins degree under their belts, which is great, but they won't be pursuing their passion. So uh, the Peabody Institute already had a recording arts program, which is very well advanced. They've got great, five great professional recording spaces. Uh, and I set about designing a new lab that was specifically for new media. And the reason that I did that was that I felt that, you know, having taught a little bit of film and TV scoring, linear scoring, uh, that really if you were a high school kid and you wanted to choose that as, as your career, you, you want to be in Hollywood. You want to be in LA, you want to be in New York, you want to be around Sundance and Tribeca and that whole world. You don't really want to be in Baltimore. So my recommendation to the Peabody Institute was let's leapfrog the linear era and get right into the nonlinear composition era. Because number one, that's a field in which no major American university is currently offering a combination of a, a trade oriented degree course like that with the opportunity to train in a, in a conventional conservatory background. I'm sure it's only a year or so until other universities are offering this, but at the point when I looked at it two years ago, there was no major American university that had both the conservatory and the technical focus like this. The second thing really was that I felt that, you know, during the four years that my students will be in their undergraduate phase, everything's going to change. I mean, by the time they graduate, who knows what, what we're going to be. We're not going to have these clunky big goggles on our heads. I know that for sure. It's either going to be cool-looking Ray-Ban type, you know, AR shades, or it's going to be smart contact lenses, or God forbid, even neural implants. I don't know where it's going to go. But my point, really, my message to the students is when these things come down the pike, 
you have to tackle them as a creative opportunity rather than a roadblock, which you're going to have to you know, find a solution for on your smartphone. That's not going to happen. You have to treat this as an opportunity to express yourselves. And in that process, that's where you're going to find your originality as a musician and an artist. So I designed a lab which consists of uh, about 15 uh, workspaces, uh, workstations. Uh, we've got great recording facilities for uh, live music at Peabody. Uh, we've got a fabulous loudspeaker array, which was kindly provided, provided by JBL. Um, so in the classroom, um, I begin by teaching them the basics of, um, of linear music because you know, some of them have grown up like playing Mario and stuff, and they'd love to jump right into doing platform games. But I feel that 100 years of Hollywood film scoring is something that is part of the legacy for all of us, even if you're playing platform games. And so the first things I look at are the sort of standard things that we would look at in a one or two year course in linear composition at a university. Uh, we then move on into uh, nonlinear authoring tools, such as Unity, Unreal, Wise, FMOD, and so on. And we will take them through some uh, approachable ways of scoring games uh, using those tools. Uh, and then we'll look also at virtual reality. And this is really exciting to me because I've always been very drawn to fields in which the rule book has not been written yet. And we just don't know in VR, you know, how the, 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 the chips are going to fall. Um, this is such a thrilling area for me. And by the way, this is not a new thing. This was, I created a virtual string quartet in 1993 at the Guggenheim Museum with this rather sexy head-mounted display. <laughs> um, so I've always been fascinated with virtual reality, and I love the fact that who the hell knows how it's going to play out? What we do know is that sound is very, very important in VR. And the importance of sound and music in games has gradually increased in the last couple of decades since I've been involved in it. I can remember user testing the first games I ever did from behind a one-way mirror. And to my horror, I would see the kids, first thing they did was turn off the music and the preferences and plug in their iPods. Well, if they want to score high these days, you don't do that, right? Because you need the sound. This is great. This is fantastic. That's because some composers are using the game engine itself to trigger aspects of the score. So if you want to score highly and you know when the bad boss is coming around the corner, you better be listening to the music. So I investigated this and I was delighted to find how important music had become in games. Uh, also the fact that in virtual reality, there is a logistical requirement for sound because you might have a, a sound that is direct to you in a certain way, um, or there might be a spatialized sound that gives you more clues about the space that you're in. But in my travels, I found there's another definite piece of uh, positive news. I talked to teenagers who have no life other than the multi-user online games that they play, and they have no friends other than, you know, Dimitri in East Germany and so on. They've never <laughs> met in real life. But to my delight, they would go into these role-playing games and they would tell me, there's this waterfall that my friends meet and hang out at, you know, every day. And I said, really, what do you do? Well, we talk about girls and sports and politics and things like that, you know. And then sooner or later, you know, we hear a little cue in the music that means that, you know, the massive army is like coming across the plains. And we rather reluctantly, you know, we leave our water, tranquil waterfall and we go off into combat. Um, but I rather like the fact that they were choosing, you know, the more tranquil um, approach, you know, every now and then. 
So um, I've been very fortunate because um, with the industry connections that I had and the fact that I have some history in Silicon Valley, a lot of people that used to work with me at Beatnik in the 90s and um, thousands were, uh, have now ended up at companies that are doing either spatialized sound at places like Google and Facebook and so on, or are involved in virtual reality. And so I was able to go back to the well there and see what people are doing. And during the process of that, uh, I came across a very fabulous social VR platform called High Fidelity. And High Fidelity was actually created by um, uh, Philip Rosedale, who was the original creator of Second Life. But this is entirely open platform, open source development, and done entirely in VR. And Moore's law has caught up a little bit since I did the Guggenheim installation, which was done on an IBM 286 at about two frames a second. Um, and uh, Moore's law has kicked in and the quality is, is now really good. And the sound is great on some of these devices and the tools that we have at our disposal in, in engines like Unity and, and Wise are, are amazing. So um, I don't know if any of you have ever dreamed of being given an island well, I inherited an island from, uh, from High Fidelity and they actually gifted my class an entirely pre-built virtual island, uh, which we could use as a sandbox to experiment with. And many of my students, they're not graphics coding people, uh, but they are able to go in and tweak a script here and there, cut and paste, um, uh, change a few properties. So we're poking around at this island and we're having a great, great time. And Part of my class is all about collaboration, collaboration with the medical campus at Johns Hopkins, where they're doing amazing work with uh, VR and AR, with the engineering uh, department um, who are building games, with the film and media school where they're doing 360 video and so on. And we're able to use this island as a sandbox. So I wanted to give you a couple of examples of work that we're currently doing in the sandbox. We're collaborating with an Italian director by the name of Lucio uh, Pascarelli and his sister who teaches acting uh, in Italy. And they are using the islands to stage TV soap operas. They actually create, they produce daytime kids TV in, in Italy. And by putting actors in head-mounted displays with sensors, just the out-of-the-box consumer sensors that you can buy from HTC, um, they're actually staging theatrical or filmic events in virtual reality at a cost of at an incremental cost of zero. So I wanted to give you a little sense of that um, because my students are able to hone their composing chops by creating cues uh, along with uh, this experience. So here we go. This is uh, Lucio Pascarelli's avatar. But we're trying to see how close we can get to a theater scenario. Um, both actors are used to theater. Uh, they've been used to all sorts of things happening in theater, people jumping on stage. So they're, they're going to be able to cope with that. Um, then they're going to come here. There's going to be another bit of a scene. And then there will be a third part of the scene, which is going to take place uh, in front of the, of the um, cafe over there. So I'll start again. Okay. Action. Look, she doesn't hate you, right? We need to talk about this. We really do. This is all we ever talk about. Don't you get it? It's it's never going to be about me and you. It's all about her. She's crazy. she's dying, Isabel. What? Yeah, she's dying. She's got maybe a couple of months left. 
you have kids now? Well, not yet. So in the daytime it's a soap, but at night it's transformed. <laughs> in San Francisco, California, in about 12 minutes' time, a dozen or so innocent mortals are going to don these HTC Vive headsets and run around this space here trying to escape the clutches of brain-eating zombies. And I am the live composer for this. So using a combination of my keyboard sounds and these pads here, which make sounds like these. I'm gonna actually create a live interactive soundtrack to the game. So the clock is ticking and very soon, we're going to get started with Escape from Zombie Island. Who's here? Hi. I'm here. So I'm up here on my platform, the Eye of God, playing the music. But right now I'm going to walk off the edge and go down into the streets with the mortals and the zombies. Here we go.
So look, there's not very much I can do about the high level of college fees, but I'm going to make damn sure that my students have a really good time. Um, uh, as you can see, some of the stuff I was complaining about early on comes to play there. Uh, you might think, well, there's nothing to stop you using messages from within the experience to trigger those samples uh, and so on. But one of the limitations that I'm currently seeing is that right now I'm just firing off those samples at random, and it's not an orchestra yet. Thanks very much for being here. Really nice to spend time with you.